Amen. Good morning. Um, yeah, I prefer being down here. We need to elevate Jesus, not the preacher. Ah, yes, greetings from KICH. We're sort of saying just KICH, whilst we think of a word beginning with H that is not heritage and suits us as a church. We're working on it. We haven't been at Heritage School for ages. So. Yeah, so good morning. Lovely to be here. It's the first time I've been here in your new residence here. Last time I was with you, it was still up at uh, Mild May. So great. Got a bit of a long passage to read first, but it's one of those really interesting ones that will kind of keep your attention. So don't switch off because I'm reading a long passage from the Bible. I know you wouldn't, but just checking. Mark 6, 30 to 56. Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, 30 to 56. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five, five loaves and two fish. And Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls, of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. I don't blame them. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. 
As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried those who were ill on mats or to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed those who were ill in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Hmm. Interesting passage. So miracles. We read about miracles, talk about miracles, even claim miracles. This thing's very close to my... Sorry, it's a tight-necked shirt. Deep down, though, if we are truly honest, we struggle to fully believe in miracles. They go so far against our understanding our reality and our intellect. They cause division, too. Theological and denominational views differ widely and arguments take place about them. On the one hand, you have sort of conservative doubt and skepticism, and on the other hand, you have miracle cru crusades, where you can walk in and claim your visa, your lottery win, or your healing, like some kind of celestial vending machine. Christians and churches worldwide try to find their level of understanding on a subject that defies human logic. Now, the reading we've just looked at tells two stories that fit well into the illogical and extraordinary camp. The desire of the disciples and Jesus to offer supper is commendable but very impractical. The disciples recognize that and they suggest that the crowd Googles for local restaurants and late night stores still selling snacks. Jesus has another plan, to use the immediate resources available, then let his father step in and cover the shortfall. This is very similar in many ways to the very first miracle, distributing the best wine towards the end of a wedding, again defying logic, while also upsetting those who think we shouldn't drink wine. Moving on through the text, we come to the next miracle. Now, is this a demonstration of showmanship? Why did Jesus need to walk on water? Could he not have calmed the storm first so the disciples could row more easily? There are so many questions about the logic and science here. It's tempting just to turn the page instead. Let's not go there. It's too complicated. Dictionary definition I found says the miracle is an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. Well, I'd call him God. Now, boys learn from their dads. Jesus doesn't do anything that contradicts the actions of his father. If you look through the Old Testament, you see plenty of accounts of the miraculous, a wooden staff turning into a snake, then morphing back again, a bush on fire without getting burnt, a large tract of water separating 
so that a whole army can cross it. Somehow, these Old Testament stories that we've heard all our lives from Sunday school have become easier to accept than the more recent of miracles. But they're no less incredible and all defy nature as we understand it. I watched a National Geographic documentary not so long ago, and it was exploring the possibility of the parting of the Red Sea. It was fascinating, but completely inconclusive. It was a genuine attempt to scientifically endorse scripture by searching for some natural phenomenon to explain how this could happen based on the geological form of the seabed and specific wind patterns. Down through the ages, we have tried and failed to tame God and put him in a box made by human hands. And I am so glad we have failed. Now, because we are, by nature, quite self-centered, you know, we think of ourselves more than anyone else. Come on, don't deny it. <laughs> I want to now look at us, the human species, you and me. Thomas Carlyle said, we, each one of us, I'm not talking about me or Rory or Monica, I'm talking about all of us. We are the miracle of miracles, the great inscrutable mystery of God. I love that word, inscrutable. Psalm 139, verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now, be careful about the word wonderful. We misuse it. Wonderful, full of wonders. We wonder at it because it's impossible. You know, we just say, oh, that's wonderful, meaning great. But it actually means more than that. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. Wow. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Luke 12.7, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. If we stop and consider the creative power of God that is behind our very existence, we see a miracle. The fact that we have the ability to think, to puzzle and question these things is miraculous too. How is that process put into us? Scientific research maybe can explain the functionality of the human brain, but it doesn't explain our capacity to love, to rejoice, to worship, to see beauty, to create music and art that delights the soul. I could go on and on and on. We are breathing, walking miracles. And the miracle continues when God intervenes and transforms us. Augustine said this a very, very, very long time ago. I think it was 13-something. I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I totally agree with Augustine. Whenever I think of where God has brought me from up to today and how he has transformed me through his spirit, I am amazed and awestruck. How about you? And I want to move us on to the miracle of the creation we see around us all the time and we hardly comment on. I love every opportunity to get off and explore this wonderful region. I am in love with the landscape and wildlife of East Africa. For those of you who don't know, I've been here uh, 25 plus years now. I see God's amazing handiwork in the broad expanse and the minute detail. C.S. Lewis. Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story, which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Lewis recognizes here how blind we can be to what is staring us in the face. The incredible nature of everything going on around us every day can be lost to sight because it has become so familiar. Before you lose too much sleep trying to walk across a river, open your eyes and see the intricate design of the trees growing along the riverbank. For those who didn't get it, that was alluding to Jesus walking on water. G.K. Chesterton seemed to be on the same wavelength when he said, the whole order of things is as outrageous as any miracle which could presume to violate it. What he's saying here is when you look at the planet we're in, that is incredible. Don't worry at this point in time about any miracle that might change it or violate it. Just look around you. I agree with his general idea, but I disagree with his language. I don't think it is outrageous, though I can see where he's coming from. I don't think there is any violation taking place. But Chesterton recognizes God's power in this quote, maybe not quite understanding the character of God along with it. I could almost hear a Pharisee saying this to Jesus, how dare you upset the order of things by outrageously healing on the Sabbath? It's a violation of the rule book. So I agree with the heart behind what Chesterton is saying, but maybe not his language. But this brings us to the main point I want for this morning, not to diminish the points I've already made, more to qualify them. Jesus did some amazing, baffling, disruptive, and wonderful things. He amazed and confused those who saw him, saw them. This amazement and some confusion continues in those who follow him to this day. That's you and me. Theologians puzzle. Scientists study hard and try to explain things. And the modern equivalent to the Pharisee and other religious leaders get outraged. All because Jesus followed in his father's footsteps to do what came naturally. 
my word choice is deliberate. Genesis 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is the account of God beginning the creating process that resulted, if we choose to read on, in the nature we understand and see around us, including the design workshop where we were made. Now, if we took a poll amongst you, there would be varying perspectives among us of the literal or poetic interpretation of the creation story as it is written. That's okay. But any argument that takes God out of the equation ends up with frustrating and unsatisfying conclusions because they fail to give an explanation for the intricate detail, the life force, and the emotions we see, feel, and experience around us. I want to confer again with Augustine, where he says, miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. I'm going to read that again, just as it sinks in. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. And C.S. Lewis again says, miracles do not, in fact, break the laws of nature. I said just now that Jesus, in his Father's footsteps, is seen doing what comes naturally. And I said I chose the words deliberately. We need to use caution when we think something is impossible. The Creator can do whatever he wants with his own creation. Why should we be surprised if a loaf designed to feed maybe four people can adequately feed 1,000? And a fish that would be satisfying as a candlelit meal for two gives a protein fix for 2,500. Then we find that 12 baskets of leftovers are taken by donkey to the local food bank. We're talking here about the God who designed the clever breathing system of the fish, using gills so as you can breathe underwater and have an amazing technique of reproduction where thousands of eggs are spawned each season. The same God created a tiny seed capable of growing into a tall wheat plant containing uncountable numbers of seeds which, when ground together, mixed with water, which incidentally he also created, and the option of yeast, which in itself has extraordinary properties, can make delicious bread. The prime mover behind it all is the same one who we attribute to the miraculous, 
The more I wrestled with this topic, trying to decide what to say and how to frame it, the more I came to the conclusion that what we see as miraculous is normal and natural to Jesus. We might see the miracles as some kind of magic show, but Jesus saw them as a solution. There's no wine left. Create some. The people are hungry. Feed them. The man is sick or demon-possessed. Heal and deliver him. Compassionate and necessary solutions to the human needs and problems he encountered daily in his ministry. I have quite a long quote from Tim Keller that I want us to look at and unpack before we conclude this morning. So this is Tim Keller. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem what is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proof that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. In this quote, Tim Keller is enveloping the miraculous in the redemption story. And this makes complete sense to me. It would be so out of character for Jesus to do anything without a redemptive motive that the idea would be quite ridiculous to imagine that he wouldn't. His whole purpose of coming to earth in human form was to bring salvation to God's children lost to sin. That's why he came. It was the driving force of his ministry and the reason for his death. We live in a time when we put a lot of faith in science and intellectual understanding. Our education system, I know there's some teachers here, so please don't crucify me. Our, our education system champions this too. I don't want to dismiss science in any way, but I would say it is finite and limited. Scientists are a product of the creator. So why should we believe that they would know better than the one who created them? When our minds are being challenged by a miracle that seems inexplicable, it's time to look back to the cross and be reminded of the bigger picture in the story of God. I want to bring a conclusion here, and it's a three-point challenge. And it kind of brings back the different points I've looked at in the last however many minutes. First of all, look around you and look in the mirror. Recognize the fearful and wonderful craftsmanship in each and every one of us, including yourself. For some of you, sorry Rory, this may be scary and uncomfortable thing to do. You might not immediately like what you see. Look closer 
and consider how each part of you is created with a unique and important function. Then realize that this also applies to the body, the church, our fellowship. And it is no mistake. It is all by design. Then remember what Jesus has done in your life, how far he has brought you. Look around you, look in the mirror. Secondly, the second challenge is to win back your sense of wonder. Open your eyes to see the incredible in the everyday. Take time to study the detail in that flower, that bird, that butterfly, or that tree. Then pan out when you have the chance and see the awesome grandeur in the mountains, in the rivers, in the lakes of this beautiful country of ours. As you gain back your wide-eyed wonder, you will see the miraculous in his creation. And finally, the third challenge is I want you to examine any unbelief, any skepticism, any incredulity about miracles. Do you place God in a box to contain him with parameters that you are comfortable with? Have you lost the faith to believe fully in his power to change, transform, and renew your life and the lives of those around you? Take your hands off the brakes and look to Jesus with a new expectation that he can and he will do immeasurably more than you can possibly hope or imagine. God is unfathomable, untamable, all-powerful, amazing, and wonderful. If miracles are normal and natural to Jesus, then why not for us? Let's pray. Father, forgive us our unbelief. Forgive us for taking our eyes off your creation. Forgive us for doubting you, your power. And Father, also forgive us for turning miracles into a magic show when you just want to transform our lives. Father, we want to see your power. We want to see your miracles. We want to see your Holy Spirit's work in our midst in every way. But I sense that you want us to first just look around and see what you have already done and claim back the wide-eyed wonder that says you are a good God. We thank you. We thank you for everything that you've done around us. We thank you for everything that you've done in our lives to this day. In Jesus' name, amen.